The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer, one of the voices behind the CNBC podcast Squawk Pod. In these times of uncertainty, we want to make sure we're bringing you, our listeners, as much information as possible as quickly as we can. That's why we're sharing with you now a CNBC special report, Markets in Turmoil. Listen in. Good evening. I'm Scott Wapner on day 178 of the coronavirus crisis. And tonight, a border battle as virus outbreaks intensify. Political considerations and pressures guide their uh, lack or delay of taking action and also premature reopening. We see this in Florida. Connecticut's treasurer goes after the Sunshine State. Tonight, his counterpart in Florida reacts even as cases spike in his state. Plus, new information on workers at Disney, saying they're not so happy about having to return to the happiest place on Earth. Will they go back? Crisis in Houston. The city is running low on hospital beds in critical care centers. And one part of Vegas doubles down on safety. This CNBC special report begins right now. Here's Scott Wapner. Welcome. It is good to have you with us on this Wednesday night. We start with a big move from New York, New Jersey and Connecticut, calling tonight for a 14 day quarantine for anyone coming in from high risk states, including the state of Florida. That state's chief financial officer is Jimmy Petronas. He's with us live tonight to respond. Mr. Petronas, it's good to have you. Thanks for being here. Hey, Scott. What, what is your response to what these states announced today? Look, those states are just, you know, unfortunately in the throes of some of the worst economic times in their history. You know, if they feel like they have got a problem uh, with the state of Florida coming to visit, the only solution they've got is to quarantine, to keep people in the state for 14 days. So in the case of, of the decisions that they're making, it's, un it's unfortunate for them. It's unfortunate for their economy. But they've got bigger problems to solve than keeping Floridians out of their state. Nobody's moving there. Yeah, 900 people a day are moving to the state of Florida pre-COVID-19. Yeah, how is it any different, though, than what your governor, Governor DeSantis, announced back in March when he had the same requirement for people from New York and New Jersey in this tri-state area coming down to Florida, which he, by the way, said saved lives? How is it any different th than what your own governor did? Well, I think there was a, definitely a hot spot and a concentration that took place from New York, highly concentrated, where there are flights that go every day in the tune Southwest Airlines, I think 11 flights a day from New York into Fort Lauderdale. So there is a migration that happens every year. People from the Northeast come to warm weather states. You know, what's happened is now that the governors feel like there's a an influx in Florida or a concentration in Florida that are going to travel up. Let me tell you, people from Florida are not moving to the Northeast. It's not a matter of moving to the Northeast. It's a matter of visiting and vice versa. There are those who state who say that your state is on is on the verge of being out of control. You had a record number of cases today, 5,500. Your new hospitalizations were the most in a month. Isn't that an issue? The, the increase in cases in the state of Florida are in low age uh, individuals. 
our ICU bed is is highly uh, available. There's plenty of ICU, ICU beds available in the state of Florida. And Governor DeSantis has been leading. He has been creating a, an environment because not every part of the state is the same. So not every area in the state should be treated with the same type of restrictions. So why isn't this simply about taking precautions and saving lives? As I mentioned, you didn't answer the question. You did have a record number of new cases today. Regardless of what age group they fall in, the virus is still spreading in your state. I understand the point you're making. As you're seeing cities like Tampa, you've seen Pinellas County, Dade County, you're seeing where state, uh, countywide instances of mask requirements are taking place. So as you're seeing where spikes are taking place, local governments are taking it because you can't put the same set of terms on every single area. If you've got a hot spot and you've had an increase in numbers, those mayors and those county administrations are taking the necessary precautions as they feel this is the best need to curb the numbers. Why, curb the numbers. why should you not have a, you just mentioned masks and the orders from a more localized level. Why not a state order, though, on masks, which the governor said he is, he's not going to do, that it's too hard to enforce? If it's enforceable in more densely populated states, why isn't it as enforceable in the state of Florida? Not every community is the same, nor should they be treated the same. As those areas that have spikes in numbers, there's definitely an argument to be made where there needs to be a different protocol established there than in the rural parts of the state that don't have the spike in numbers nor the transient visitors. Yeah, I want you to listen to what the uh, Connecticut treasurer told our network today, and then I'd like you to respond to it. Let's listen. Okay. Part of the difference of what you're seeing in the country, you know, states like New York, uh, Connecticut, uh, letting the science guide the efforts. That's very different from uh, other states, some of which let political considerations and pressures guide their uh, lack or delay of taking action and also premature reopening. So we see this in Florida. That's the Connecticut state treasurer. Did you open too aggressively too early? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. We're seeing a V-shaped recovery in the state of Florida's economy. In addition, we're seeing businesses going above and beyond. I went shopping last week with my wife. It was her birthday, a store that she wanted to go into. The retailer took the extra step at the door, checking and seeing if they would like a mask. If they didn't have one, providing them a mask. So businesses are doing what they take in order to keep the retail cash register running and keep their businesses open. So you're seeing that's no different than seeing car dealers doing contactless car delivery and sales. Businesses are adapting in order to build consumer confidence. The, 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 the treasurer from Connecticut throwing out the politics adage to this is, is simply ridiculous. Do, do you think that everybody in the state of, of Florida, sir, should wear a mask when they go out in public? I think anybody who has had an ongoing health care condition should be erring on the side of caution. My 92-year-old uncle is not leaving the house. He is concerned about his own well-being. I'm glad he's taking that step. Anybody who has that condition of a concern should do it. Masks are not a bad thing. And, you know, if we can get to a point where they become standard operating procedures, so be it in order to give people the, the comfort that we need. But again, not every part of the state is in the same type of density or flare up that we've seen with the COVID numbers uh, that that you're bringing up in your concerns. But it sounds like you're at odds with your own Surgeon General. I'm going to read you today the emergency alert from Florida's Surgeon General, who issued a public health advisory today. Everyone in Florida should wear face coverings in any setting where social distancing is not possible. Individuals should refrain from groups greater than 50 people, social distance six feet apart and wear a mask. Then you could read the entire uh, advisory. But 
Your Surgeon General says everyone should wear a mask. Well, to your point, if you can't uh, conduct yourself in social distancing, then, yeah, there's nothing wrong with wearing a mask. You know, err on the side of caution. If you want to to be, uh, you know, better, better off in general, a mask is not uh, uh, something, a, a bad thing to wear. So, again, I'm not arguing what the Surgeon General is doing. If you're in a position where you want to attend a movie theater, as movie theaters open back up, it's probably smart you wear a mask if you're concerned. You know, and sometimes it's just nice to be courteous to those out there. The other big story we're following tonight, sir, is the fact that Disney workers down in Florida are petitioning to try and stop the opening of the theme park. Are you in favor of that? 77,000 employees are at Disney, uh, Disney's overall, all their parks. It's going to be hard to get a consensus of all 77,000 of those employees wanting to go back to work. Disney is going to take all the necessary precautions, whether it be taking temperatures, requiring masks at the park. It is it is a, a bellwether as the economy goes in the state of Florida. Disney contributes over $700 million a year annually to the sales tax uh, revenues of the state of Florida. I do not think Disney will be taking this lightly. They'll be making all the necessary steps in order to protect their employees and their customers. They're a good company. Are, are you prepared at all to delay the next phase of, of your reopening if the cases continue to increase at the rate we're seeing today? So last night, I used to be in the restaurant business for 30 years, and I got phone calls last night from restaurateurs saying the Department of Business Special Regulation has stopped in and checked my business. You know what? I appreciate Governor DeSantis giving direction to his own agencies to go out there and ensure that businesses are abiding by the guidelines he's setting forward to ensure that they're enforcing the 50 percent seating requirement right now. So, again, I think Governor DeSantis is being measured in his decisions that he's making and that ensuring that the, the, the numbers that we're abiding by for best practices are being observed and respected. Mr. Patronus, I, I so much appreciate your time tonight. Thank you for coming on CNBC. I love CNBC. Thank you for having me. <laughs> well, it's good to hear. We'll talk to you again soon. That's Jimmy Patronis down in the state of Florida for us. Now to Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's the former FDA commissioner, now a CNBC contributor. Dr. Gottlieb, good to have you back. Your reaction now to what has happened today, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, where you live, and this uh, quarantine order. Well, look, I think it was um, inevitable. We had talked about it on the show. I think that you're going to see more of this inside the United States when there's hot spots now. Um, states are going to try to put restrictions on travel for the states that don't have a lot of infection, trying to restrict travel from states that do. Um, so this is probably going to be something that we see more of, with, especially in the north and the northeast, where the states took, you know, had really a brutal outbreak in the northeast um, and, and northern states like Michigan, Chicago, Illinois. Um, I think they're going to think about putting restrictions on travel. Florida isn't in the worst shape of all the states in the south and the southeast. Um, but it is in um, difficult shape right now. Their, their positive cases are up by 66% week over week. Their testing is actually down by 10% week over week. So they're testing a little less, um, and the positive cases are going up. And so that's a challenging sign for them. Their positivity rate is going up quite rapidly down there. The highest number of daily cases now we've seen in the United States, more than 36,000. Your level of concern, Dr. Gottlieb, about where we truly are tonight is what? Getting higher. Um, you know, the number of cases that we're turning over right now, the 38,000 cases that we're turning over right now, don't represent quite as much infection as we were turning over in April um, when we had our, recent, our, uh, our previous record of 36,000 
daily cases because back then we were testing much less. So we weren't turning over as many cases. We were probably diagnosing one in 10 to one in 20 cases. Now we're probably diagnosing about one in five to one in 10 cases. I would guess about one in eight. So the overall infection burden in this country is less, but it's still very high. We still probably have about 200,000 infections a day, and we're diagnosing right now about 30,000 of those infections. And so that's really concerning to be having that level of infection this late in the summer. And you're seeing states like Texas, California, Florida, Arizona, South Carolina, uh, Alabama, for that matter, where cases are growing quite rapidly, and it seems to be that they're tipping into exponential growth. Um, California with over 7,000 cases today, uh, Texas with 5,500 cases, Florida with 5,500 cases. That's a lot of new infections in those states. You heard my conversation with the state treasurer uh, for Florida who said they will not mandate uh, the wearing of masks statewide. Uh, is that a mistake? Should they come out and make it mandatory to wear a mask if you are going out in public? Well, the, the problem is that anything they do right now is going to have an impact two weeks from now. The cases that they're turning over right now were infections that really started a week, maybe two weeks ago. And so if they don't get aggressive now, it's going to be difficult in two weeks if the cases continue to build at the rate that they are to, to intervene forcefully enough to really have an impact on this. This is what we learned in the Northeast when we intervened late. We started the mitigation late. We saw cases continue to go up for another three, four weeks at a pretty high clip. They're going to see the same thing. They're going to see their case counts go up pretty rapidly over the next two weeks. And so the actions they take right now really aren't going to have their effect for a number of weeks. And so they need to think about what it's going to look like in two weeks if these cases continue to build these, le these levels, um, the burden it's going to put on their health care system, and try to skate ahead of the puck. Yeah. The, only, uh, the other story I mentioned is, is Disney and these workers now petitioning to try and get the company to delay the reopening of, of the theme park. If you were advising Disney tonight, what would you tell the company? Well, look, the, the governor did make an effort to get a lot of these businesses restarted. Um, I think a lot of these businesses are going to have to rethink that, these hospitality businesses, not least of which because people aren't going to travel in uh, to go to these venues right now. If Florida continues to be in the news and cases continue to build at the rate that they are, people are going to be looking to avoid vacationing in these venues. And so it just may not be economical to run these businesses right now. I think the best thing Florida can do for their economy isn't to pressure these businesses to reopen, but to get the infections under control. They had all the advantages of a seasonal effect there, and they probably had some of those effects impact the declines that they saw over the course of May. Um, and now they're seeing the reverse of that. As people go inside for air conditioning, they're starting to see spread. So they, they're going to have to look at closing congregate venues and taking more aggressive actions. Um, whatever they do right now really isn't going to have an impact for a couple of weeks. And so they ought to think about that, what it's going to look like in a couple of weeks again if these cases continue to build at these levels. I'm going to ask you to stay with me once again, Dr. Gottlieb. I'm going to turn to another hotspot tonight. That is the city of Houston as it sees record high hospitalizations for 12 days in a row now. Dr. David Purse is the health authority for the Houston Health Department. Sir, it's good to have you. Thank you for being here, doctor. Thank you for having me. So how dire is the situation growing in the city of Houston? Well, we're not dire yet, but the curves are all getting steeper and steeper. And so my fear is that within a couple of weeks, uh, we're going to be in very bad shape. Where are we in terms of ICU capacity? The ICUs across Harris County are about 90% full, and that's with hospitals doing a lot of work to 
uh, you know, uh, keep some vacancy there. And of course, not all hospitals fill at the same rate. So we do have several of our large hospitals, which are already full. And then there's some vacancy in other hospitals uh, throughout the city and throughout the county. Yeah. What's the answer? What do, what do we do, uh, given the caseload that's building in, in the city? Well, the, the answer really is in, it's in the, in the population. It's in the people. The answer lies with Houstonians and Texans. We need to wear the masks. We need a social distance. We need to actually do the things that are being asked. We did it a couple of months ago, and it worked great. And now as summer has come and people have changed their attitudes, we're not doing it so much. And now we're, you know, we're seeing the consequence of that. Do we need to shut things down once again? More, more stay-at-home orders? I don't know about that. You know, when you do those sorts of things, there are consequences, not only economic, but there's also healthcare consequences to that, too. So I try to tell people we are no longer at a point where we can eliminate the risk. We now need to think about managing the risk. When you shut down uh, businesses, you put people out of work, uh, all kinds of bad things happen to them uh, in a variety of ways, including health consequences. So we really need to start getting our heads around wearing masks, social distancing, and get with the program. Yeah, these are not easy decisions. Your, your point is, is very well taken. Um, there was one suggestion, you know, a couple of months ago that you might have to, to open the NRG center because of the ICU capacity was filling up. Is that a thought again this time around? There is a tentative plan to open up a small uh, medical shelter. And I say small, it could be as much as 150 beds, but it's not for ICU patients. And so it's important that people understand these will be for low acuity patients. So the ICU crisis if we should get there, I will not be relieved by Energy Stadium. Dr. Purse, I appreciate your time. We, w- we wish you well. Uh, we certainly stand with everybody who's fighting this, uh, this virus and, and doing the best they can. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thank you. All right, it's good to talk to you. Back to Dr. Gottlieb. Uh, seems like it's getting more precarious, uh, Dr. Gottlieb, down in Houston especially. Seems the epicenter of what's happening, at least in the state of Texas. Yeah, that's right. Houston's probably the hardest hit right now. When you look at some of their medical centers, they seem to be reaching capacity. Texas Medical Center puts out very good data on their hospital capacity. 27% of the ICU beds now are filled with COVID patients, and they're going to have to go into surge capacity starting in just a couple of days based on current projections. And Within two weeks, they'll be in what they consider really an unsustainable surge capacity where they're trying to expand ICU beds with things like the PACU, um, and other kinds of uh, venues, opening up other kinds of venues in the hospital to create more ICU beds. And so that's a, a city that is very hard hit right now. Other parts of the state don't have as difficult of a problem. You look at parts of Dallas, Austin, um, all have a lot of cases, but not to the same, same extent as Houston. Does Houston need a shelter-in-place order? Look, I think I think they need to take action to try to close down um, venues where they know that this is spreading and they need to figure out what those venues are. They've so far isolated the bars as one source of spread. The governor all but said people should be sheltering in place today, hasn't put in place that kind of an order. I think it's going to be very hard to implement that down there um, and tell businesses they have to close, tell people they have to stay in their homes. I think it's sort of uh, antithetical to the culture. And now that they've opened up, I think it's going to be hard for them to shut down again. We always knew that. We knew that once we reopened um, businesses and lifted these stay-at-home orders, it was going to be hard to go backwards. But again, it's the same situation in Florida. That What they're seeing now is the consequence of spread that happened a week or two ago. Uh, and if they're projecting out that the hospitals could be at capacity in one or two weeks just based on current trends, whatever they do now isn't going to really disrupt those trends. What they're going to do now in terms of policy to try to cut down on the spread is going to have its intended effect two or three weeks from now. So they need to figure out where they want to be in two or three weeks and start implementing policies to achieve that. Look, Governor Abbott in the state of Texas uh, tonight describing the situation there as, quote, a massive 
outbreak that is that is sweeping the state. That pretty much says it all. That's right. The spread seems pretty, pretty pervasive there based on the trends in, in positivity rate going up and the new cases that are building. And the fact that a lot of the cases are in a younger age population. And so that suggests that it's just the tip of the iceberg because many of the young people who get infected aren't going to present to the hospital and aren't going to present to providers with uh, symptoms. So they're never going to get tested. So the fact that so many young people are presenting with symptoms suggests that there's probably many young people behind behind the ones who are presenting who are also infected. And at some point, you have a level of infection, even if it's in a 30- and 40-year-old demographic, that's going to seep into the older demographics where you're going to start to see the extreme morbidity and mortality, the extreme death and disease. I want to finish uh, with a question. It's a bit of a right turn, but nonetheless, it's important. And it's flagged to us from uh, Meg Terrell, who you, who you obviously know well, our farmer reporter. Um, hearing about shortages of dexamethasone, uh, the steroid that's been very much in the news over the last couple of weeks. Have you heard anything uh, about that, Dr. Gottlieb? I've talked to doctors, and I know they're giving it out much more aggressively right now. I'm surprised that it would be going into shortage this quickly unless hospitals are stockpiling it. I don't think it would just be from utilization. It's probably people starting to stockpile that drug and pulling it out of the supply chain. Worried at all if that is, in fact, the case? I'd be worried, but we should be able to restock that relatively easily. Um, There's multiple generic manufacturers of that drug, and it should be able to get restocked relatively easily. We need to focus on it. If, in fact, it's being stockpiled and being pulled out of the supply chain, you don't want spot shortages created when doctors need it. Appreciate your time once again. Dr. Gottlieb, we'll see you tomorrow night. That's Dr. Scott Gottlieb joining us. Fears of a resurgence of the virus hitting Wall Street pretty hard today, resulting in the worst day for stocks in about two weeks. The Dow falling 710 points, the S&P 500 and Nasdaq both off more than 2% as well. The biggest losers on the S&P 500, perhaps not surprisingly, the cruise ships, Norwegian, Royal Caribbean and Carnival, all down more than 10% on the day. Let's give you a quick look at futures, how tomorrow may shape up for trading and right now modestly green across the board. Here's what's coming up on this CNBC special report. A big change in Vegas, as one major casino hotel doubles down on safety. That's next. Plus, plans for one of the biggest school districts in the country. Their start date is already closing in six weeks away. First, the United States of America on Wednesday night, June 24th. on the horizon for financial markets at pgim it's a question that over 1400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals specialized across asset classes but united in collaboration our teams provide global and local expertise our investments shape tomorrow today pursue your tomorrow with pgim a leading global asset manager
On day 178 of the crisis, here are some more headlines on the virus tonight. Apple reclosing seven stores in the Houston area because of a spike in cases there. The FDA and USDA say there's no evidence people can get COVID-19 from food or its packaging. And this year's New York City Marathon has been canceled. Well, if you're looking to gamble without a face mask, Caesars Entertainment is saying no dice. The hotel and casino operator now requiring that visitors to any of its properties wear face coverings. Our Contessa Brewer following that story joins us now. Hi, Contessa. Hi there, Scott. Yeah, it means that any guest, any player, anyone passing through any of the properties that Caesars owns or operates across the nation has to mask up. Caesars has already reopened casinos in nine states, and in many of those places, cases are on an upward trajectory. Clark County, Nevada, has broken records for new daily cases several times over the past week, in some instances outpacing New York City. On Saturday, Caesars handed out 400 vouchers for $20 in free play to customers in Las Vegas who were voluntarily wearing masks. But today it took a much stricter step. Caesars CEO Tony Rodeo said, we promised that Caesars would continue to evaluate the latest recommendations, directives and medical science. The scientific evidence strongly suggests that wearing masks and practicing social distancing may be the most important deterrence to spreading COVID-19 from person to person. The casino makes allowances for eating and drinking, but Caesar says it is prepared to kick out people who will not follow the rules. Leaving it up to customers' own common sense just wasn't really working. That's why gaming regulators in Nevada last week changed the rules to mandate masks at table games to protect the dealers. Well, the Culinary Workers Union, it represents casino workers in Las Vegas, is pushing for masks on all guests, arguing, come on, bartenders, housekeepers, bellmen, they all deserve to be protected. Derek Stevens, who owns Golden Gate and the D Casinos in downtown Las Vegas, told me as case numbers rise, customer behavior is changing. I think the average customer has changed. Far more people are wearing masks. Certainly the majority are um, just walking through. So I think, I think society in general may have, may have changed a little bit, even in the last uh, 10 days. The governor of Nevada has opted so far not to mandate masks in public, but I'm led to believe that may change tonight. He's holding a news conference in about half an hour to address the troubling trend of increasing coronavirus infections in his state. And there are a lot of people who are expecting him to make an announcement mandating masks. Scott. As Contessa, some other states are doing where there are casinos. You do have to wonder in, in some respects what regulators in the casinos themselves were thinking from the beginning how this was going to work and, and why masks weren't required in all of the casinos from the get-go. Well, we heard from Nevada regulators. They thought that people would take the initiative and protect themselves. And it clearly wasn't happening upon reopening. In Massachusetts, they're taking no risks at all. They're saying, not only do you have to wear a mask, you're not allowed to carry your drink from place to place inside the casino when those casinos reopen because they're worried you'll forget, take down your mask and take a drink. New Jersey casinos will open next Thursday before the all-important 4th of July holiday. And there the governor says, we're not leaving it up to a bunch of yahoos to decide. Masks will be required inside these casinos. It's going to be a different environment. Contessa, thank you. That's Contessa Brewer following the money for us in the gaming business. Here's what's coming up next. Next. 
the woman in charge of one of this country's biggest school districts on her plans. The clock is really ticking for her. Some schools start in early August. And using size to your business's advantage on Main Street, USA. We're back in two minutes. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. With six weeks to go, what will school look like in one of this country's biggest districts? Hear from the superintendent tonight. And a restaurant owner finds a way to ensure customers are keeping their distance. This CNBC special report continues. Here's Scott Wapner. We're back. Schools in Los Angeles County start early, as early as the second week of August. That's just six weeks from now. For more on the plans for the county with two billion students, let's bring in Deborah Duardo. She is L.A. County Superintendent of schools. Madam Superintendent, it's good to have you. Thank you for being on our program tonight. Thank you for having me. If you had to make your decision tonight on schools, what would it be? Well, we want schools to open. We are as excited and eager as anyone else to make sure children are back in school and learning and connected with their teachers and their peers. So we're doing everything possible to make sure that we can bring our students back ensuring that we can do that safely for both our students and all of our employees. You are having a record number of new cases in the state. Big concerns about what's happening in the state of California. How is that impacting your decision-making process? So the way that it works is we work with our local Department of Public Health, who is following very closely the cases, uh, and we are planning based on their directives. So we know that when we do reopen schools, we're going to have to have safety precautions. We will be implementing social distancing, making sure that children are washing their hands frequently, that all of our classrooms are disinfected. And in order to do that, we're going to have to have smaller class sizes, more employees that will be monitoring children to remind them, especially our younger children, of the importance of practicing those that physical distancing to ensure that they're safe. When will you have to make a decision? Is there a, a time frame that you've set for yourself where you have to make a determination? So we have 80 school districts in L.A. County, and each of those school districts will make that decision based on their situation, based on the surveys that they've conducted with their families, asking parents, uh, are they ready to send their children back to school, how they would like to see school look when they get back, making sure they're figuring out the transportation issues to ensure that children are transported safely. So there's a lot of uncertainty still. There's a lot of information that still is being um, pending on the Department of Public Health in terms of the number of cases that we have. But right now, most districts are looking to reopen uh, some districts as early as next month, um, depending on where they are at and and those local decisions that those communities are making. How flexible do you think you'll have to be? We spoke with an administrator from a school district down in Florida last night on this program who talked about perhaps a hybrid model. You're in school part of the time, you're distance learning for, for part of the time as well. Is that something you're thinking about and considering as well? 
Definitely. Districts are looking at, in order to maintain that physical distancing, having different options. So having some kids maybe come to school a couple days of the week while learning remotely on others. Some are looking at bringing their younger children back or students with disabilities or English language learners who it's more difficult for them to learn remotely. So districts are looking at all of the options. What we're probably going to see is a combination of very different options for parents to decide um, what works best for their students and their family. You know, you've got two million students. I was thinking the other night about sports and how we, we spend so much time talking about professional sports and college sports as to whether they're going to take place in the fall. And it dawned on me, you've got all these kids who love to participate in sports, in school, in the public school system, be it football or, or anything else. Are we going to be able to have those activities? So it's going to look very different. We are going to be able to allow students to play some sports that are more individual, but a lot of the team sports students will be able to work in small groups or individually to um, physically condition themselves. But in terms of the big sporting events, the football games with spectators coming to visit, that certainly isn't anywhere in the near future, but you can apply that also to to some of our um, music programs, chorus, uh, students that are using instruments. There are precautions that will need to be taken to ensure that we're not spreading uh, COVID. And so there's a lot of safety precautions. Schools are working really hard to figure all of this out. They've been planning since closure to reopen. Uh, you know, we also have to consider the mental health of students. They've been away from their teachers. There's been some loss of instruction for students who didn't have access to devices or to internet connectivity. Um, you know, this um, pandemic has has impacted students in a different way, especially students who come from families that um, don't have the financial resources. So we're really trying to focus on which students have had the most significant loss of instruction and ensuring that we are reassessing and figuring out how we're going to catch those students up and how we can bring them to school as soon as possible. If they have to stay at home, are you providing technology assets, computers and tablets and things like that to help out in the digital divide. We talk about that a lot. Yes, absolutely. Districts have given out over 500,000 devices. Um, we're working with different philanthropic organizations. The governor has offered some support. Um, so we're really trying to make sure that we're closing that digital divide because, as I said, this is very fluid. It may be that we open up a school and we find that there are cases in that school and we may need to close it again. So we need to be prepared to have distance learning available should that happen. How tolerant will you be in terms of new cases. How many cases will there be before you'll shut a school down? So again, the, the shutting down of a school is not my decision to make or the districts. It really is comes from our Department of Public Health. Uh, I believe once they see more than three or four cases, they're going to come in, want to do school-wide testing and, and determine whether or not it's necessary to close down that entire school. You have a heavy lift ahead of you. We wish you well. Superintendent, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Right, it's Deborah Duardo, again, superintendent of the Los Angeles County Schools. There's lots more ahead tonight. We could never have ever seen the pandemic coming. Coming up, Main Street in a big city. One restaurant's quick pivot. Plus, when the buildings and offices he cleaned shut down, he came up with a new revenue stream. And... I have 
Never seen so much business on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. A restaurant owner's unique way of ensuring social distancing. First, our world on the 178th day of the coronavirus crisis. Since the start of the pandemic, small businesses have had to adapt quickly in order to survive. Three entrepreneurs in Milwaukee use their size to their advantage. Here's CNBC's Andrea Day with Main Street in Crisis. Milwaukee is right on Lake Michigan. It is beautiful in summer. It is very cold in winter. It is a really wonderful, diverse, artistic destination. It's a great place to live and a great place to do business. You know, everyone says, oh, opening a restaurant is so risky. That's going to be so much work. But we could never have ever seen the pandemic coming. When the shutdown occurred, it was kind of like, okay, we still have a lot of bills to pay. We are new, brand new. Moving to curbside pickup only um, has not been too much of a challenge for us because we sell street food. People started asking, hey, I want this for later. Is this easily reheatable? Um, Or could I buy them frozen and then I can bake them at my own? And so we came up with our own uh, different line. And that line of frozen empanadas has really taken off during this time. People are cooking more at their own houses. It really was the right place and right time. A nearby metal fabricator was also slammed by the pandemic. Two of our five largest customers basically deferred all of their work indefinitely. All of the orders that were supposed to be shipped in April and May had been pushed out and then cancellations. And we basically took quite a bit of time to work through all of those with the customer. We were able to push things out and also defer payment. I think um, we came to some agreements that were a win-win for both companies. Their values are aligned with ours and that creates a real partnership. Being small allows us to have a lot more control over who we choose to do business with. Not far from GenMed, a brewery's brand new owner struggles to keep his business alive. I was fully committed. I had to make a decision with my wife and my family that, hey, uh, we're going to mortgage our house. We're going to get, you know, a big debt and, and put all our eggs in this and buy this company. And suddenly, who knew the world came crashing down and the orders stopped coming. Just boom, what happened? Not to mention some said, hey, take your stuff back. Because what are they going to do with the kegs of beer and soda that have to go to the bar and restaurant? I can't sit there forever. So you're basically paying your customer back. Luckily, the, the grocery and the retail business is doing good. Consumers are believing in the local story and they want to help us too. So they want to buy more of the local product. I'm very proud of our city. I'm proud of the community and, and the way that they've come together to support each other. Whether it's God or fate or whatever you believe in, when things like this happen, they're meant to teach us something. For CNBC, I'm Andrea Day. Good slice of Main Street there. We wish everybody the best. As infection rates climb and businesses start bringing employees back to the office, demand for 
Effective disinfecting services is on the rise. Dirk Bach is president of SDQ Janitorial. It's a $100 million cleaning enterprise with more than 500 clients counting on his crews now more than ever. Dirk, good evening. Good to have you here. Hey, thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So what do you do? The office building doesn't open. There's nobody going to the office. So how does your company pivot in that environment? Correct. So what's happened, and it varies based on sector. Um, We're helping companies right now get into their buildings as they're starting to open up. What we've seen and what has uh, happened is a lot of companies were shut down during that part of it. And as that happened, um, you know, our industry was affected by those shutdowns. But people now want a safe environment. They want cleaning for health. They want uh, companies to have the uh, essential disinfecting products in addition to the actual cleaning. And so that's what we're beginning to uh, do. And that's what we've been ramping up on to help companies reopen and come back into the, uh, you know, come back into their companies. How did you get by over the last few months? You lost at least a third of your customers. We did. So based on the industry sector, we lost companies, for example, uh, schools, churches, all those went off. Universities went offline. Retail went offline. Um, But then you had the industrial portfolios. You had the essential manufacturing companies. All those buildings, you know, ramped up and they needed more people. So there was some of that medical, you know, we were on front lines with them on the medical. But as we got further into the pandemic, if you remember, many of the medical staff ended up uh, being furloughed as well, because a lot of these services were considered non-essential. And so we saw reductions on the contracts on that side of it. But what happened is with the new vertical on the disinfecting side, these buildings still needed to be maintained. So we have gone in and we have been able to ramp up those services um, and help. And now things are starting to pick up. So we were never formally shut down like a lot of businesses. We were essential during this whole thing. But at first it was hire as many people as you can. We don't care about costs. Get it cleaned. And then literally overnight things started dropping off. And slowly and gradually they're starting to pick up on there. Where, where um, are you? Where any are you? manufacturing companies, anyone tie Forgive me. I'm sorry. Where are you now with, with so, your employees, yeah, the ones you had prior and, and where you are tonight? Yeah. So we are we are almost back to full capacity of where we were last year. So we had had a lot of new growth uh, early on in the year that kind of dropped off and got absorbed. Um, So right now, year over year, we're down a little bit, but the work is picking up and companies are now shopping out on services. But what we're finding is any of the specialty work, whether it's floor care, carpet extraction, people aren't getting that kind of work done anymore. So as a result of that, um, they are doing the disinfecting services and, you know, we are cleaning quite a bit, you know, unconfirmed or confirmed cases of COVID where an employee or someone has gone home because they've been sick. Dirk, it's good to hear your story tonight. We wish you well. Thank you. That's Dirk Bach, president of SDQ Janitorial. Coming up, a unique form of enforcing social distancing. That's next. A restaurant owner in South Carolina trying to keep her business COVID free with inflatable dolls. Here it is in her own words. We were barely breaking even 
and it was very hard to pay your rent. After 60-something years in business, we just felt like we had to do everything in our power to, to make it work. We once a week have somebody come in and sanitize the restaurant with a fogger. We spray all of our silverware down with alcohol. In our social distancing, we placed blow-up dolls. I said, you know, I'm going to dress them up nicely. I'm going to make people smile. We ended up ordering them from Amazon, and they didn't cost us but about $140 for 10 of them. The men were less expensive than the women. The women's makeup is much prettier. I went and borrowed some wigs and put my own clothes on some of them. The men are very small, so I put my grandson's clothes on the men. It's been four weeks now that we've been open, and the place has been packed. I mean, I have never seen so much business on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night. My husband and I pretty much run the place. But I think he's very happy with what I ended up doing. He had his reservations to start off with. But now with the publicity and everything going on, it's been great. You do whatever you got to do. That was South Carolina restaurant owner Paula Starmalahes in her own words tonight. It is time now for the five restaurants, our nightly shout out to those operating in the face of the crisis. Maxine's Chicken and Waffles in Indianapolis, La French in Denver, the Sunshine Vegan Eats in Buffalo, New York, Dilla's Delights in Detroit, and Soup Up in Washington, D.C. You can tweet me at Scott Wapner, CNBC. Use the hashtag thanks for the grub. Use the name, the town of your favorite restaurant. And if you send us a picture, we'll use it as well. Get you on TV. The headlines now on day 178 of the coronavirus crisis, the U.S. hitting its highest daily total of cases with California, Texas and Florida all recording one day records. Caesars is now requiring masks be worn inside all of its properties in the United States. Stocks fall, the Dow dropping more than 700 points and just in and breaking tonight. The Washington Post reporting now dozens of Secret Service agents have been told to self-quarantine after the president's rally in Tulsa over the weekend. You can go to CNBC.com for up to the minute information on the markets and virus all night long. We're back tomorrow at 5 a.m. with Worldwide Exchange. I'll see you on the halftime report noon Eastern. Of course, as always, back at 7 p.m. tomorrow night for markets and turmoil from all of for all of us here at CNBC. I'm Scott Wapner. Please stay safe. The Shark Tank is coming up next. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.